even the math classes were just saturated with this pandering racist irk. And I mean, racist is in boiling down the value of an individual to their racist stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So like sombreros on Cinco de Mayo is a really great way to put it because that was the kind of way that we were expected to treat our students. And it was that environment that just sickened me to America's public education system. And, and people believed they were doing the right thing, but I was also silenced and, and chastised and even banned from working for a school. If I ever suggested that uh, sometimes it wasn't a teacher's fault that the student failed and sometimes a student needed to fail in order to be taught a lesson and later succeed. Howdy, everyone, and welcome back to Moment of Truth, the podcast of American Moment. My name is Saurabh Sharma. I'm the president of American Moment, and this week I'm doing this solo. Um, Nick and Evie uh, were out in North Carolina telling their families about, uh, well, uh, we're, we're adding a member to the American Moment family pretty soon. Uh, Nick and Evie are pregnant. We'll throw up a picture here uh, of them and their ultrasound, and so uh, it's a pretty joyous time for us. Very exciting. Um, uh, you know, uh, when it comes to, to supporting the American family, uh, American moment takes a hand on hands on approach. Um, many of our, uh, of our staff are, are, are building and growing families of their own, um, uh, and have been for the last year and, and into the future. So, uh, this week I got to, uh, enjoy sitting down with an old friend of mine, Tony Kinnett, um, who is the current executive director of Chalkboard Review and Choice Media. Uh, Tony and I kind of came together a few years ago through kind of young conservative circles, you know, hung out at CPAC, that sort of thing, and kept in touch. And um, he uh, was in the Indiana public school system as a teacher and a science administrator, it caused all sorts of trouble out there trying to push back on the nonsense that uh, people are trying to do in public education. Him and I have always seen fairly eye to eye on on some of the issues there. And uh, over the last year or two, he's, he's taken a much more active role, uh, eventually got canned from the Indiana public school system because he exposed the critical race theory that was happening there and now leads two fantastic organizations, Chalkboard Review and Choice Media, um, where he's going to be shining a light on a daily basis on uh, what is going on in our education system, the the, the racial, sexual degeneracy that happens, um, and much more. Uh, uh, we we see eye to eye on, on obviously the fact that our education system has declined, but also on some of the mistakes that the conservative movement has historically made on how to reform education, namely the overwhelming prioritization of school choice. And we do talk about that close to the end. And uh, he tells a bunch of amazing stories about uh, just what these public schools think they can get up to. I mean, including stuff like taking just six months off of a school year to teach racial equity in middle school. Uh, there's just chock full of uh you know interesting anecdotes in this episode uh, how tony sees the world what it's actually like to go through um a teaching master's program what it's like to teach in a uh, violent public school district what exactly is going on in these schools a lot of education commentators in dc they've never been anywhere close to being a public educator themselves tony actually understands what's going on he understands how to reform it i think it'll be a great episode it was a joy for me to to have uh, an old friend on the show um uh, i had been on his podcast not too long ago. I highly encourage you to check out everything Chalkboard Review and Choice Media are publishing and uh, hope you enjoy this now, I guess, episode 54, 55, something like that of Moment of Truth. We'll go now to Tony. 
Tony, thank you for coming on the podcast. Always a pleasure. Uh, we always like to hear about how people got where they are today. And you have a journey a little bit different than a lot of the politicos and staffers and politicians on our show. Tell us that story. Why are you why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. So uh, I've always been interested in politics. It's always been fun to watch and participate in growing up, did a few speech competitions in high school and received a West Point appointment, but really didn't feel like that was the right direction. So I went to this small Christian college and near the end of my time there, I was told that I should go be an intern of policy and legislation at Governor Scott Walker's office. Did, had a blast, became his uh, one of his junior education policy advisors and then hopped back into teaching, which was my major. Taught for two years. Started writing politically because I you teach taught science, middle mm. school, high school, biology, those mm. kind of things. Mm. And then uh, just couldn't get the itch scratched for writing politically. Loved analysis, commentary. No one seemed to be reading the bills they were whining about. And uh, just kind of got into that so much that I started to break stories instead of just writing about them. And by the time that I was moved up into science administration, I was the director of science called a coordinator for lame bureaucratic speak uh, for Indianapolis public schools. And they didn't like that I was an education journalist. And when I pushed some documents out that were publicly accessible uh, to the whole city and then to the whole nation, they got really mad and they ended up throwing me out on my can. And so now I'm doing political journalism full time. So a lot of the people that like to opine about education policy and, um, you know, what's going on in our schools do not have the inside perspective, what it's actually like to be a teacher in America today. Tell us a little bit about that school district, that area that you were uh, teaching and eventually administrating in, uh, what that was like, how archetypical you think that example is and and what people get wrong about what the system actually is like good and bad well the first and foremost thing that's necessary to explain is that teaching is not hard it's not a profession that requires an enormous amount of skill it does require you to be competent at your content knowledge in your area to be a good teacher but you can certainly be a mediocre teacher and know really no more than your average high school student and that happens quite a bit Really, the biggest issue that the majority of teachers in the country face are behavior problems right now. Record numbers are leaving because of the horrible behavior of students. And even worse, the administration holds no standards. That was certainly Indianapolis problem. There was one particular meeting we were going into as administration in which we walked in, we sat down. And as the principal who was hosting us was walking in, a teacher shoved her resignation into her chest and said, I'm done and walked out in front of all of us. And that was pretty standard procedure because of how chaotic things are. That's the standard in education right now. Mediocre skill. So the reason I got teacher of the year the first two years I taught was because I was passionate. I was energetic and I knew my content and I studied my content. And so just a very base level of work put me above the average teacher. And that is the normalcy for American education today. Now, uh, American teachers unions and uh, the entire sort of bureaucratic complex that this exists to advance their interests would lead you to believe that, you know, teachers are singularly competent, capable, um, uh, you know, figures in American life, that any ills in American education are the fault of either the students or the system. It's not their fault. Uh, Where did this kind of self-victimizing concept of, of the teaching profession start and And why do you think it it exists? It started because there was an idea in the 90s that teachers were these wonderful creatures who self-sacrificed everything in order to try to impart wisdom onto these poor, decrepit children who had terrible home lives. And it was all gloom and doom. And it was so sad. And so these teachers, they took horrible pay to go into the trenches 
and to work day after day for they personally bought every crayon oh yeah in america well (laughs) to be honest the average individual if you praise them over and over and over again they'll believe it if you tell someone they are a hero long enough they'll believe they're a hero and i believe that the teachers unions were spoon feeding this sugar uh, giving these teachers brownies for every single meal and when the country as a whole finally started to say you're not any better or worse than any other profession you're expected to be competent at your job and you're expected to respect those who are your clientele and your stakeholders teachers responded with the same indignation of telling a child they're not as special as they thought they were Mm. and that's really something that's not only seen outside looking in but inside the school as well a lot of teachers are sick to their stomachs with the martyrdom complex that a lot of these mommy teachers have And most of my time near the end of my work in Indiana's public school systems was spent rolling my eyes along with a good portion of the other teachers. Uh, What are the kind of different pressures and forces that end up acting on a teacher? You know, what 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 are the players, you know, parents, administrators, uh, local government? What's the interplay? What's the ecosystem like? Is there any accountability on these on these teachers ultimately? So as to the interplay of factors, really, it's every single aspect of American society. Education is unique in a policy framework in that it is affected by and will affect every other industry. We'll all take part in America's education system. And then everyone we interact with will be a direct product of that education system. And so therefore, every aspect plays into it. And on a political level, the accountability aspect is a really key question because not only do you need to decide what standards are set for someone to be accountable through so what it is that you're expected to do what you're expected to know how you're expected to act what reprisals are when you screw up but also how do things change over time and what do i expect you to do over time in that district to maintain your accountability and that accountability to you so the question of accountability is is localized at the state level and and the local district but realistically every single parent and student factors into the accountability of the teacher which is why we're in this chaotic mess that we are right now is most of that unspoken accountability factor is sounding the alarm that a lot of teachers have lost the plot Mm -hmm. and that is why you're seeing a lot of the school board chaos right now is because they're trying to rectify the other side of the accountability factor not pulling its weight Mm -hmm. uh you know teachers are responsible for educating people but teachers are also educated themselves hmm. uh what's teaching education like what was yours like <laughs> what, what what exactly is the process by which we're generating these you know probably over a million people who are educating the next generation of children Edie hirsch describes this best that the teacher education programs are an absolute nightmare and have been since the columbia teaching college out of the 1920s it's oh. this regurgitated mess of progressive nonsense Uh, preparing people for this hero complex and also this grandiose set of theoretical pseudoscientific ideas that have never once worked yet sound really good. And it's really education is the bottom of the funnel for the social sciences. So any kind of social science will eventually pour through education. Mm -hmm. So whatever is the trending social topic in college of the day is going to funnel through your teaching college. And my teaching experience at least an undergraduate, my education wasn't bad. It was a classically modified uh, kind of a Baptist style with a little bit of homeschool, Christian school, private school, and public school philosophies rolled into this small Christian college experience. And it was phenomenal. My teachers cared more about my actions in ministry. And I don't mean ministry in a church. I mean, 
your daily devoting to excellence, First uh, Corinthians 10, 31, doing all things to the glory of God, and that meaning you give your 100% at everything that you do because your kids and their families are worth it and you give a testimony. That's not what people get at their undergraduate programs. Mm-hmm. And that's why my university encouraged all of its teacher education students to serve in children's ministries around to get that hands-on experience. Mm-hmm. When I got my master's degrees, though, and I took a look at Ball State's teacher education program, it was a nightmare. It was incredibly lukewarm. And the things that those students were getting were long, airy lectures on philosophy, soft-handed circle sessions, like t- making friendship bracelets, which our co-founder, Daniel Buck, was forced to do at University of Wisconsin-Madison. And through some of the lectures... In a teaching master's program. Yeah, in a teaching master's program. <laughs> and then teacher education programs below might as well just be, you know, reruns of the Rugrats. Mm-hmm. It's embarrassing. What um, what was the process by which uh, you realized that the, the fairly wholesome and, and capable uh, education that you received to be a teacher was not what your fellow teachers in Indiana public schools had received by and large. About six weeks into my student teaching placement at a Southern Henry County school in Indiana, I took a look at the way some of the other teachers were teaching. And I had always been told by the media, and there was always kind of an idea that Christian education was subpar, that Mm -hmm. public education was far better for getting you prepared to work in a public school environment. And then I got into those classroom environments and all of my students' grades were going up and all of the other teachers' students' grades were pretty much staying on the same level, you know, maybe varying 5 to 10%. And that confused me because they were all public college graduates. And the more that I started paying attention to how other teachers taught, and then I also kept up with some of the alumni from my university and also universities like Hillsdale, I was noticing that the excellent students and the high achieving students were coming out of those institutions and the mediocre, the mediocratic sludge per se was coming out of these public institutions on the average assembly line. And that's when I really started to notice. Now, when I started teaching, that was kind of the confirmation of it. I had my own classroom, had my own students and they were all doing well. Students loved my classes. Other teachers in the administration loved my classes. I wasn't doing anything special. I was just carrying forward what was taught at my undergraduate. Mm-hmm. Um, tell us more about the, the the kind of war zone that was the school district that, that you, uh, worked in. I mean, it was, it was a fairly urban district. Um, uh, you know, people see sort of excerpts of the kind of anarchy that happens in a lot of these urban school districts. Uh, What was it like? Tell us a few stories of just the absolute dysfunction and decay that existed on a daily basis. I taught in three different school districts in Indiana directly. I taught at Knightstown Intermediate School, which is where they shot the movie Hoosiers. Uh, I taught at Lawrence North High School, which was a suburban with a lot of uh, east side indie poorer students. And then I was a science administrator in Indianapolis Public Schools, 31, 35,000 students, huge area of Marion County. The level of violence that increased the closer you got to Indianapolis was palpable. Mm -hmm. Um, The fights that would break out at Lawrence North were serious, but none of none of those ever broke out in my room because I was a firm I was a man mm-hmm. when I taught my students and mm-hmm. my students respected that and, and told me later that they needed that. And not just your standard straight white male student, but my other students who were very to the left, they would often cling to and they told me that they would cling to the masculine firm classical education air that came out of my biology classroom. And I carried that over into my administrative role at IPS when I would walk around to all of these classrooms. And what I saw was horrible. 
two of the high schools had their bathrooms locked because, and I quote, they didn't want students to kill each other. Normally you say that and that's a hyperbole. This is not. Uh, there was an Instagram account for uh, Arsenal Tech High School that cataloged the daily fights at the schools. And not to mention some of the staff that spent half of their class preening about political issues on science, on social sciences and history. Uh, English, of course, half the English teachers out there, I tell you, are just flunk out writers who would rather do progressive activism than teach. Mm -hmm. And even the math classes were just saturated with this pandering racist irk. And I mean, racist is in boiling down the value of an individual to their racist stereotypes. Mm -hmm. So like sombreros on Cinco de Mayo is <laughs> a really great way to put it because that was the kind of way that we were expected to treat our students. And it was that environment that just sickened me to America's public education system. And, and people believed they were doing the right thing, but I was also silenced and, and chastised and even banned from working for a school. If I ever suggested that, Sometimes it wasn't a teacher's fault that the student failed, and sometimes a student needed to fail in order to be taught a lesson and later succeed. Mm -hmm. You know, up from the ashes come the roses of success, to mm -hmm. quote Chitty Chitty Bang Bang. <laughs> <laughs> so, so tell me a little bit about that. I, I mean, I, I think that there's a couple of core heresies, so to speak, that permeate the American education system. One of it is this hagiography of of teachers and 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 making them into these folk heroes without any sort of accountability. The second is sort of an entire set of social theories about merit, what success looks like, why students fail, etc. So in the system that, that you were a part of, that was, I think, representative of what most of American public education is like, what was the prevailing theory for why a student wouldn't do well? The prevailing theory was that their race and to a lesser extent their gender was the core reason for why they would succeed or fail. And that's built on the idea of this faux academia, this goofy idea that you can take the most based qualitative data. Like, let's say I have a classroom that has 10 black students and 10 white students. If the 10 black students are on average doing worse than the 10 white students, mm -hmm. we automatically snap our fingers mm -hmm. and say, aha, that's evidence of systemic racism. Mm -hmm. When in reality, intergenerational poverty, uh, what side of the city that they live on, fatherlessness in the home among any student of any color is going to play a far greater role, these cultural lodestones. And if you mention that, you're cast aside. So mm -hmm. what I just described, viewing students' cultures and behaviors as the key factor of success, is a demonized facet in the school as being a horrible way to Why? view a child. Because it puts the responsibility on the child as well as on the teacher, and it forces you to look at the data and make hard decisions. It forces you to look at a child and say, yes, your dad is not in the home. You have a responsibility to pick yourself up and to lean on me when you need help, but recognize the problem and get your life in order. And that's a hard thing to hear, and it doesn't work for every student, mm -hmm. but it is far, far better for a student to hear that than to hear you're a victim. The system's always been out to get you, and you might as well waller in the squalor until the white man comes along to save you. Mm -hmm. That's the prevailing idea in public education. Mm -hmm. uh, practically speaking on a day-to-day -day basis, what were the battles that you were having with other teachers and other administrators? Um, because you were good at your job, uh, and you know, ideally in a system, even if you had these political disagreements, these philosophical disagreements, that the results would would shake out and in your to your benefit. What, what, what were the 
fights that you tended to get into with with your colleagues? So in directing a district level science curriculum, I had a series of goals that I rationed out in a way to be achieved so that Indianapolis would recover its reputation that was currently trash in the sciences. I wanted the district's numbers to increase. I wanted the teachers to be more comfortable with teaching science, especially elementary teachers. Elementary teachers often don't teach math or science well because they didn't like it when they were in school. Mm -hmm. And therefore that carries over. So the day-to-day conflicts that I would have with colleagues, other directors of math and English were how I placed my goals and that I often didn't ever focus on racial equity and uh, LGBTQ affirmation programs Mm -hmm. and increasing the number of women that we had in the STEM classes. My goals were lowering the barriers across the board. And a giving the indie taxpayer more bang for their buck in our science program, mm-hmm. not wasting money, mm-hmm. and then also increasing the rigor and the expectations mm-hmm. of our science department. Mm-hmm. So my other colleagues thought that I was very unfeeling, I was very insensitive, uh, that I should just focus on the pretty shiny toys of science, like little robots running around on the table like my predecessor had mm-hmm. done. And my teachers were kind of split down the middle. Half of them really loved what I was doing. And half of them wanted the pretty shiny toys. And a lot of those teachers, I reasoned, were upset with me because I expected them to work. There was one teacher that took two or three days. And the only assignment she gave her students is a high school integrated chemistry and physics class. What is your favorite movie? What is your favorite movie? Two days, (laughs) sophomore science class. And I criticized her for that. And her vice principal almost jumped down. Well, no, there was no almost. She jumped down my throat for that. And I wasn't allowed to work. That was the school that I had been reprimanded for telling the teacher that he shouldn't feel bad for letting a student fail. And what kind of school was that? Arsenal Tech High School run by Principal Corey Franklin in inner city (laughs) high school. Uh, He runs that school about how you would expect in the current social climate. Yeah. And he banned me from working with the school for a couple of months because uh, it was just so horrible that I would expect students and teachers to work. Oh, the horror. Yeah. Uh, You mentioned bang for your buck. Uh, What were the, uh, I mean, especially with some of these inner city schools, the the per pupil cost is insane. I mean, New York, especially uh, Chicago, a lot of these big urban centers, but but even in in smaller urban metros, what were the biggest sinkholes in terms of cash resources that you saw that these school districts were wasting money on first and foremost the racial equity institute they would bring in to do these sessions at least once a month if not twice a month every staff member had to go through two solid days of racial equity training a teacher from indianapolis Mm -hmm. was just telling me about the most recent round Mm -hmm. and they pay them millions of dollars a year Mm -hmm. every year indie taxpayer money just to bring someone in and tell you that you're racist Mm -hmm. Uh, also ton of useless social programs we revitalize our subscription services so we have netflix and hulu you know for entertainment but in education we have subscriptions to different education services different learning management systems that are supposed to help a child or give them some math things to do or give Mm -hmm. them science resources to access that are already pretty available Mm -hmm. Uh, the classic example is discovery education has a series of articles that you can pay annually for but there's also a website called science news for students that's free Science News for Students has more scientific articles, more resources, and they're pretty much the same articles from Discovery in some cases, but they're not asking you to spend an arm and a leg for a brand name. Mm -hmm. That really summarizes a lot of the financial sinkholes at Indianapolis, spending money on useless social programs. Mm -hmm. What about the kind of technology aspect to this? I I remember when I was in 
primarily, I think it was the middle school uh, was the apogee of sort of every classroom needs to have a smart board. And my sister, um, it, as she was finishing high school, it was everyone needs to have an iPad or a laptop. What is what of those trends in terms of trying to, uh, you know, upgrade the tech in classrooms? Uh, what have those fights been like? What's the reasoning behind it? I mean, I'm sure that the tech companies love it. They're getting very rich off of it. How do you how do you see that? Well, right now it's everyone needs a Chromebook. There is a very interesting battle going on between Apple and mm -hmm. Google in trying to make their learning management systems better. Apple is very far behind the curve mm -hmm. and they're losing ground rapidly because Apple infrastructure in the classroom is so restricted. I can change anything on an Android architecture or a Google OS architecture system. Apple, super restricted. Uh, I remember at the Hoosier Education Computer Conference, uh, which is held every year in Indianapolis, I actually got to watch two of these tech salesmen side by side yeah. try to argue the case for their stuff. Currently, Google's winning and pretty mm. handedly. Every student needs a Chromebook. That's been the lesson really that has been learned technology wise through the whole covid lockdown situation mm -hmm. so that every student can take their computer home and do all of their coursework from a laptop style computer and have Internet access for it. Mm -hmm. So in some cases, it's Internet infrastructure is kind of the hot thing mm -hmm. to have, especially with some rural schools. Mm -hmm. There have been hot spots that they've sent home with some kind students to to inflection points here there's like pre-covid and post-covid the mm -hmm. situation changes i mean obviously if you're locking down your schools you need a way to zoom in but, but yeah I'm, i guess pre-covid what would the boondoggles like definitely stem architecture mm -hmm. and infrastructure making sure that you had the latest and newest shiny toys so that when the parents come through you would see some basically they, think that they have like albert einstein oh yeah, yeah yeah you have some big huge robot you know squaring off arena and they have mm -hmm. vex robots lifting blocks and doing all kinds of stuff and they're coding and mm -hmm. wow we're so of the future we must be doing a great job mm -hmm. and it was the most spit and polish program that would get the most parents and so all of the money went into that the unfortunate thing is that most of those stem programs are garbage and they teach students next to nothing. Mm -hmm. And I will start naming corporate names if you don't move. <laughs> you quickly. should. You should. I mean, I, I'm curious here because th this seems to be one of the, one of the great boondoggles is I mean, I mean, my perspective on, on education is, is very much motivated by um, kind of three distinct phases, maybe four, actually, of, of, of education in my life. Um, from in elementary and middle school uh, or in elementary school, I went to a sort of uh, lower middle class, um, you know, just out of urban suburban uh, school district. Um, and I saw interesting things there. For early middle school, I went to a STEM focused charter school. Um, then for late middle school and early high school, I was in India and experienced that education system. And then when we came back, we were in a eh, somewhat affluent uh, suburban, big like Texas high school. And each one had sort of different interesting characteristics. But but the biggest contrast was schooling in, in India vis-a-vis -vis everything else is that in India, no one cares about the, the the fancy toys or any of that stuff. It's like you will learn chemistry and you will learn chemistry better than most American college students learn chemistry. You will mm -hmm. learn physics. You will learn English. They, they they recognize that academics is rigorous and there's no substitution for just learning the difficult stuff. Whereas in the United States, they create these proxies in the name of uh, experiential learning or, or hands-on, mm -hmm. you know, engagement with the subject matter um, that 
make everyone feel better like they're creating little isaac newtons but in reality feels like it's just playtime it's about shortcuts Mm -hmm. it's all about shortcuts so in other countries that value education and i don't mean value the material Mm -hmm. because a lot of people think education is the books that's not education education is you're applying what you have learned directly memorizing it understanding it and then using it Mm -hmm. that's the height that's synthesis in Mm -hmm. bloom's taxonomy so education now has become fully focused on how quickly you can get to synthesis Mm -hmm. i am not going to stand on any building on any building's roof that has the bottom floors that are just popsicle sticks yeah but that's what we're doing Mm -hmm. we're skipping all of the the heavy content the physical sciences the understanding of rote and core mathematics and calculation understanding the rules of grammar phonics uh, conjugation construction diagramming so that we can get to the really cheap payoff at the end Mm. we're skipping to the end of the novel and then we're testing our students on the novel and they don't remember it and it doesn't work Mm -hmm. because yes while students minds are pliable and they're very apt to learn things quickly because of how student and mm. child brain development works. If you skip the foundational steps, your brain will not hold the processes together for you to reach new things later on. Mm-hmm. So in a classic example with STEM, instead of learning the physical sciences and how they work and then offering up an elective that can sharpen some skills, we have given students the sharpening phase and we're trying to use a fine arkansas sanding stone to sharpen a boulder Mm -hmm. and it's not refined and it doesn't work and it doesn't carry over into any field you can't go back and learn the physical sciences Mm -hmm. it doesn't work like that yeah um and so there were all of these issues with the schools that you were teaching in and and helping administer and then COVID happened walk me through what you saw happen stepwise as the pandemic began in this urban school district complete and utter confusion so you and i had just saw each other uh we'd just been in each other's presence about a week before everything fell yeah, apart yeah yeah cpac 2020 2019 2019 yeah 2019 yeah and uh, i'd gotten home and i'm back in the classroom and immediately everything is is this chaos of no one knows anything no one has any idea what's going on there's all this confusion and students are you know it'll kill you in an instant it, it's just a small cold and no one had any idea at about the same time, an NPR wing uh, of Indiana's had reached out to me and said, we want you on the radio as an education technology expert to walk us through what it's going to be like for schools to close down, how the infrastructure is going to look. And when our school finally gave the order to shut it all down, send all the kids home, and then there were two weeks of nothing. I mean, just school was closed. We'll be in touch. We may send a packet home. We may not. Some iPads were out, some Chromebooks were out, some weren't. It was a mess, a logistical nightmare because no one had prepared for anything like this. I was asked to come on the radio and I told my administration at the school at Lawrence North, hey, I'm going to be hopping on as an education panelist. You know, I'll let you guys know. Here's the link. And they cut me off from going on and they said, you're not going to go on and talk about any of this because uh, you're not allowed to speak without the administration's approval. And that kind of became the norm for anyone on the right in education that I really only started to see once COVID became the norm, because there was this idea that if anyone from the right went on the air, they were going to spread some kind of disinformation, that they were going to make the school look bad because things were just starting to come out about what parents were seeing at home. And the school was terrified that I was going to say something. Now, honestly, they had nothing to worry about. I was completely involved in education technology outside of them. I had I didn't want to report anything on Lawrence North at the time. Mm. 
but it was a weird psychological shift in education from being something that everyone got to participate in to only a core group of people being allowed to have an opinion on mm -hmm. and nothing else was allowed. That was the final snapping shut of the Overton window was the COVID-19 pandemic. Yeah. So everything shut down for two weeks and then kind of concretely, what were the stages of, of what happened in your school district? Oh, they gave us like weird shifts of when we could come collect our stuff and couldn't talk to anybody and everything had to be wiped down 805,000 times. I had to come collect my stuff. And then I taught from home, but I was prepared to do so. And I ended up forwarding a lot of my biology curriculum to the rest of the biology teachers in the district and ended up becoming the head of biology as kind of a de facto spot because I was the one who was providing everyone with the notes, some of the lectures, activities. Some classrooms struggled in such a significant way that I'm pretty sure students didn't see their teachers in some of the English and history classes for like three months. And learning just stopped in a lot of cases. I had students that didn't show up. I would talk to their parents, parents who were like, well, I thought he was over at his friend's house, you know, logging into your class. Of course, that isn't the case. Um, it was weird. It was such an eye-opening experience for a lot of people of the rot that's been going on in public education mm -hmm. for some time. Mm -hmm. And well, was, was it, it's it feels like it was the final dropping of standards where like at the very least that the, the baseline was that you were expected to show up. We had laws on truancy and absence. Um, but with the COVID-19 pandemic, the standards finally just fell right through the floor. You weren't even really expected to be there. Um, and and I have to imagine, especially in some of these urban schools, again, they, they had the excuses that they would make about urban poverty and technological yeah, deficits. Yeah, it's, it's really, really hard. We can't we can't possibly expect them to show up to school and mm -hmm. even worse with assignments. You know, don't give your students zeros for not turning in assignments. Why? They're not doing anything at home. Mm -hmm. And no one seemed to get that. There was the, the only narrative that they could come up with to counter that was that students were sitting at home and their knees were shaking 24 seven and they were just <laughs> terrified. And so yeah. they couldn't do any work. And I was like, Number one, no. Mm -hmm. Number two, that's not what my students are telling me beyond just knowing basic. What were they telling you? What was that experience like on the student side of things? I have to imagine, especially if you're kind of middle or high school. I mean, this traumatic's the wrong word, but it was it was extremely disruptive for their lives. They what were, were some so of bored. Yeah, they're like, I I've I've done everything. I mean, I don't know if you ever experienced a snow day growing up, um, or several together in Indiana. We would have a few days off from school for a big blizzard that would roll through. And by about the third or fourth day that school was closed, you were kind of tired of it. You'd done everything. You you know, all of the fun there was to be had sitting at home goofing off and you were ready to go back to school. These kids endured that for months. Mm -hmm. No challenges, nothing really to engage them. Just this small half a foot by, you know, three quarters of a foot screen that was their only window into the outside world. And even then, I mean... In a lot of the areas that these kids lived, running around outside was not the safest thing to do, especially mm -hmm. with Indy starting to pass Chicago's per capita murder rate. Mm -hmm. And so it was a really weird experience to talk to kids who were prisoners in their own homes, who were not in danger of being hurt by this virus in one way or another. And they couldn't do anything about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I wasn't even allowed to give them schoolwork and hold them accountable to it to give them something to do even in a work sense it was it's really was quite awful what we did to those kids what was the unwinding process like how did or has it not happened yet i mean what what, what is the what is the state of indiana public schools right now vis-a-vis -vis covid and and you know what's 
what are the permanent changes that have been made? What are the kind of things that have gone away? So there is a different psychological mindset that occurs when schools go back from COVID. And it's this very timid, very scared, looking from side to side like something's going to get you. And in an answer to that, school systems, at least in Indiana that I've seen, have taken a very authoritarian approach to communications Mm -hmm. regarding post-COVID education. And that goes back to what I said earlier. No opinions are allowed but the administrative opinion. Only the hyper-progressive solution is even feasible. Mm -hmm. Anything else is laughed off, scorned, condescendedly spoken to. And all of these other factors have been completely washed away in this one single authoritative narrative that has been set forth. And the change is... What is that narrative, like, concretely? The critical race theory, the social emotional learning, all of these different leftist practices have been rolled into the, well, we were really pro being safe about COVID. And so therefore we're right about everything else. Mm-hmm. And that's the only way to view things. And everyone it allowed the worst people in the system to consolidate power. They really did because there, there's a moral, they now have a moral authenticity, so to speak. Mm-hmm. You know, they can claim the moral high ground and say, well, I was right about this one thing and I really cared and I loved my students. Don't you care and love about your students? And they've used that to establish cement control and then push whatever it is that they want through and hold parents, teachers that disagree, administrators that disagree Mm -hmm. in whatever scorn they desire. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned critical race theory. Um, You know, God, God bless Chris Rufo. He, He has done God's work mainstreaming the reality of this problem um what were its precursors or or maybe it's existed for a very long time um, that have existed in the education system how did we get to the point where white kids are being told to hate themselves uh what were the antecedents what's the what's been the temperature scale slowly boiling that frog alive inside our education system over the last 50 years So in the 1960s, at the start of the sexual revolution, because the majority of the modern American problem comes from the sexual revolution, Mm -hmm. there was this idea that the the traditional battles that we fought, including the civil rights movement, which did not come out of the sexual revolution, and many of the civil rights leaders were very against the sexual revolution and Mm -hmm. that kind of irresponsibility and promiscuity, there was this idea that there were these largesse systems that were responsible for keeping them down. You know, the man is, as was said, and many students turned to the writings of Pablo Freire and pedagogy of the oppressed, which the core concept of that book is the majority is always oppressing the minority. And therefore the minority is always right. Mm -hmm. That's the whole book in a sentence. Well, that last clause, the majority is always, or the minority is always right became a framework for critical race theory. And Gloria Ladson Billings, who's a professor at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, Ed Week ranks her as one of the top 10 most influential educators of all time. Uh, I actually sat under some of her lectures when I was in Governor Scott Walker's office. She wrote in 1994, 95, and 98, these writings on how this critical race theory, uh, pulling from the writings of Derek Bell as well, who wrote about the permanence of racism in American society, Mm. that any kind of discrepancy any gap in any racial performance was due to racism. And therefore you had to assume that a person's race was their most valuable asset and characteristic. And this was back in the nineties. And the reason that she wrote about this in the nineties is because this is when we started to see the huge gaps in America's inner city schools, which have a lot 
of minority students. How do you account for the huge epidemic of fatherlessness that came out of the sexual revolution in these inner city schools? Mm. How do you account for the intergenerational poverty from parents who stopped achieving what their parents tried to achieve? A lot of children of parents in the civil rights movement didn't have the attitude of their parents in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. And they stopped working and they stopped pursuing the American dream. And they sat where they were and said, it's good enough because I'm never going to make it anyway. This pedagogy of the oppressed mindset really started to fester. Mm -hmm. And so Gloria Ladson Billings said, well, the reason these kids are performing poorly in schools, not because of poverty, it's not because of fatherlessness, it's because of white people. Mm -hmm. And she festered that all the way through. And then she said, in order to be relevant to your students, culturally relevant, meaning that you can connect with the experiences that your kids have had in order to teach them better, in order to be relevant culturally at all, you have to view them by their racial stereotypes. And as the public education system has festered and continued to rot, and it was no longer inner city schools, but it was the suburban schools and area schools, the ideology came along with it. Mm -hmm. And despite all of the quantitative data that says it's completely ridiculous, it makes no sense at all, it doesn't fit in any peer-reviewed study, mm -hmm. period, it prevails because of the moral authority of don't you care about X, Y, and Z. So practically that, so that was the theoretical framework. Walk me through kind of practically how this was implemented in public education, because that's the part that I'm always a little bit uh, frustrated about that, you know, conservatives, they love to... They love to ascribe to ideas a ton of power, right. but ideas in practice always look different and they are implemented by very different people than the ideologists to begin with. And so concretely at a, you know, middle school science class, how are these ideas implemented in the way that it's taught day to day? Or is it just it's the excuse that you can wrap yourself in to not have to teach at all, to not to have any standards? Sure. So there are really four aspects to any education system. There is the curriculum which is the what you have to learn, the instruction or the pedagogy, the teaching of that, the assessment, finding out how much they learned, and the communication, which wraps it all up together. Mm -hmm. So how critical race theory funnels into these things is really quite simple. First of all, with the curriculum, making sure that the examples that you use in the word problems, the materials that are taught are history revisionist that have an underpinning idea that America was founded to be evil, that, uh, for example, if we're learning about molecules, we would go over the scientists who discovered the atom at various stages in their theories. Well, according to the critical race theory narrative, those are all white men. So that's not how you should teach it. Mm -hmm. So instead, we're going to take two or three days and go all around the world and try to pretend that, well, the Mayans thought about atoms. Kind <laughs> of, and, and, and well, I mean, the, in, in the Islamic golden age, they thought about that everything was like sticky fruit so that's kind of important to mention and it's not it has nothing to do with molecular theory but that's part of the curriculum now and in math it's the same thing it's it, math is too white so we have to talk about how well white people didn't invent zero let's spend a week talking about that yeah okay way too many american kids know who aria but does <laughs> really really and and it's not that we shouldn't address other important cultural contributions but i don't see anyone talking about lewis latimer uh, the famous black inventor that worked with Thomas Edison uh, or McCoy, who invented so many things, he's where the phrase real McCoy comes from. Yes. And we, no one talks about those things because they put the American dream in a positive light mm -hmm. because those are black inventors and individuals mm -hmm. in science who benefited from the American dream. Mm -hmm. So we can't mention them in instruction. It's, it's how you teach it. So uh, seating charts, making sure that you 
don't let your black students sit somewhere in the class. You have to make it all filtered out in a way. Don't let any students congregate where they want to with their friends. You have to spread it all out and and don't do this kind of group work because black people might feel inadequate working with a white group leader and and other instructional philosophies. Assessment, we see that happening now in San Diego and Oregon and Maine and New York where they're taking out certain kinds of testing. They're taking out advanced classes with higher level tests because there aren't enough black students in the course, and so therefore it must be systemically racist. Also an assessment, not letting a student fail. Well, you're not allowed to let your black students fail. This happened to me at Lawrence North. Yeah, tell me about this practically. How does this shake out? How, how do they prevent students from failing? So if a student does a, well, in some districts, if you get a zero, it's not a zero, it's like a 45. So if I don't do the work, I get a 45%. Now, that doesn't make any sense at all, yeah. but that's how a lot of districts run it. Some districts will say the lowest score you can get is a passing 61%. Um, and in Indianapolis, there would be endless amounts of extra credit, simple assignments, participatory whatevers that have been going on for a long time that teachers have used to kind of pad the numbers and cook the books. You know, everyone raised their hand. OK, that's five points for everyone. That kind of stuff happens in high school mm-hmm. classrooms. Mm-hmm. That's more of the instructional side of things. And then and, or and what me, are the assessment. incentives for teachers to do that kind of thing that they're they're reprimanded if their scores are too low? Oh, yeah. When I was at Lawrence North, our principal pulled us all in all the teachers into this big auditorium and said, find out the number of black male students who are failing your last test. And whoever has the most black male students who failed the most in the last test is the most racist of your team. (laughs) Now, I was sitting next to one of my co-teachers who was a very, very blue Bernie supporting SJW. She walked out more pissed than I was. And the, the the vast majority of the teachers were because what a horrible thing to say and suggest. that is how it was put to us. And besides that, it's that social level of accountability where if you want to fit in, if you want to be considered a good person, good teacher, good, a good evaluation score, which means your salary goes up a little bit. If you're highly effective, then you're going to do all of these things that mm-hmm. we suggest, because mm-hmm. if you don't, we just won't renew your contract next year. Mm-hmm. In terms of the long term incentives that teachers have, I mean, is there any because ultimately they they get to play within the closed playground that is our public education system. So the incentives are all oriented around goosing numbers in order to, to meet the criteria that the system has laid out for them, but they have no, I mean, or or maybe I'm wrong about this, but do teachers have any stake in the long-term success of their students after they leave 12th grade, whether they go to college or, or into the workforce? I mean, is there any, example of of systemic forces that actually push the incentives in that direction? I think so. One of my students that I taught at a small charter school in Milwaukee came from a really rough home, was not doing well. And I took kind of a tough love approach with the student. And he's currently a junior at Princeton Mm -hmm. and got in full scholarship. Great kid. And I like to think and I'm trying not to be arrogant, at least in, in thinking that I had a part in shaping that because I was one of the few people to get firm with him, mm-hmm. to get a bit rough with him in, in conversations and say, look, you're accountable for you. Yeah. I know it was rough. And and for the record, I also came from a single parent home. And I can point back to some of my teachers that got to me, some of the tough old male teachers who said I had to be responsible for my life, mm-hmm. Pickerel in fourth grade, Thompson in seventh grade. And I feel as though there are a lot of individuals who would point to good teachers that made an impact. But one thing I've noticed is it's never the soft, gushy, cuddly, warm teachers Mm -hmm. that wasted their students time that ever were an influence on Mm -hmm. pursuing something great. Yeah. 
So that you, you've you mentioned it a couple times, and I think it's it's worth just being very explicit about it. Um, there does seem to be some particular problems associated with the fact that the vast majority of American teachers are usually young, unmarried women with no children. Um, how do you think about that dynamics of the difference between male teachers, women, female teachers, younger, older teachers? What what are the sort of um, issues that come with with different sets of people? I mean, obviously, knowing that every teacher is unique, but there do, there do seems to be some trends that we can extrapolate from this. So I'm going to issue a statement about the uh, basic psychology of mankind that, that may not be too popular. OK, but uh, it's with real, our audience. It always it's, is. <laughs> it's, a, it's a real ringer. Yeah. And that is that at the age of 19, 20, 21, psychologically, from best we can tell from all matters of biology and human history, women start to think about having children Mm -hmm. and they start to yearn for having children. Even if outside they're like, oh, I never want kids. Like on the inside, you can see like we can test the hormone levels. It's evident that your body wants to have kids. Mm -hmm. And so an easy shortcut for a lot of them to not have to get the 18 year responsibility that comes with having a family and children is to become a teacher. And to have this suddenly you have 30 kids mm-hmm. and you can mommy them all day and you can feel like you have children and you can satiate that biological need mm-hmm. with men going into education. It seems more that men have this want to be the, the master. They want to be the master to the journeyman and the apprentice. It's the old King Solomon, the classical Masonic idea mm-hmm. that the man wants to be the master of his trade and he wants to impart wisdom and he wants to see his predecessor or he wants to see his protege grow up to be something excellent and that he can say he took a stake in that individual. Mm -hmm. And that's a biological trend. This is why a lot of guys, when they're a senior in college, will take freshmen under their wing, not because it's a fraternal requirement, because that's what men traditionally do. Mm -hmm. And so you see this in male teaching environments. Often they'll have a firmer hand on discipline, but they will work through examples in a more eloquent fashion and connect specific parts of the lesson to individual student lives directly. Whereas female teachers are more likely to bring an emotional aspect in and then pepper it with educational real world examples, Mm -hmm. which there's a place for. There is a place in a child's life for the father and the mother. And I'm not saying the teacher's the father and the mother. Mm -hmm. I got a bad grade on a paper in college (laughs) for saying that parents are not, or teachers are not supposed to be parents. Mm -hmm. But there is a biological element of what you seek to impart mm-hmm. to the younger generation. And yeah. that's what I've found throughout my studies. Yeah, that's that's fascinating. And it rings true. I mean, I, 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 can't, I can't think of any reason that would not be the case. And specifically, I mean, especially when it comes to like teaching younger grades. Is, is there like a demand curve for, for what grades people usually want to teach? Um, it depends on the individual. Yeah. I've talked to people who really enjoy teaching kindergarten through second. Some prefer teaching only fourth and fifth in the elementary grades. Middle school is usually seen as an, a no-go. Mm-hmm. I loved teaching junior high. They're old enough to know how to zip up their own pants, <laughs> but they are uh, not so old that they're too cool for school. Mm-hmm. And they'll still listen to you and think that what you have to say is really interesting. So I loved that age group. Mm-hmm. Why I, do people typically not like it? Because junior hires are hellions, man. I mean, sometimes they're they're crazy and they're annoying. And what they have to say is like, you'll ask a question about something science related and they'll stick up their hand and go, my aunt has no left knee. (laughs) What? We're talking about ecology. Yeah. Like we're not talking about like the bone structure or anything. And that's that's just junior hires. Yeah. And. Sometimes I guess that that hellion atmosphere of, you know, all sugared up and nowhere to go does scare people away. Mm -hmm. But 
usually males tend to move towards the higher grades Mm -hmm. where their students are more competent and women tend to move towards the lower grades where students come from environments and they can provide direct support Mm -hmm. and assistance to them. Which I I don't think I remember a single male kindergarten, first or second grade teacher. I don't think I'd ever met one. I can think of two that I have known, maybe three. Um, but my favorite elementary teacher was uh, in fourth grade. And he was yeah. this, again, he was, he was a guy, Mr. Pickroll, every day said respect and responsibility and made us like recite all of these good things that we should do. Yeah. And loved it. Yeah. And still to this day, I can remember half of it. Well, I remember specifically in fifth grade, um, I had a female teacher, a young female teacher, and we got into fights sometimes. But um, the, the, the classroom right next door had a male teacher probably in his 40s and the social dynamic between him and his students was just so different um it was it, it, I, it, it, I just remember it being extremely striking at the time and um those kids seemed like they were doing much better and that was when you were in fifth grade mm-hmm. it is amazing what kids can pick up on and we do not give them enough credit kids understand when something is fake I learned that you learned this way back early on in youth ministry. The first day you're feeling bad and you come in, you put on a big fake smile and you try to, you know, say something really friendly. They see right through it. Mm -hmm. And that's one of the things that if kids can pick up on, Mm -hmm. then it shouldn't be a conspiracy theory when we point these things out as adults and say there's an issue with this and we need to reckon with it. So Indiana Public Schools chased you off. Why'd they do that? What did you do? So I released several documents that showed that even though the district had requested that administrative level staff, as to which I was a part, was uh, if any parent asked us if we were teaching critical race theory, I was to I actually had this whole list of answers that I was to give them in a certain order. Mm-hmm. And that was incorrect and false. And I, I wasn't going to lie, much less lie to parents. Mm-hmm. I was one too, well, it was like two too many, too many things right mm-hmm. there. And so I collected a series of evidences of the critical race theory we do implement, the things that we ask our staff to do, the things we ask our students to do, the things like our racial equity professional development that lasted a whole day on October 18th, 2021, and all of the different things. Gloria Ladson Billings actually was our keynote speaker for the day, (laughs) of course. And How much did she get paid for that? I actually don't know. I've never sought out that figure, but some of her speaking events go for $25,000, $30,000. So it's a good living if you can get it. <laughs> yeah, man. I, racial stoking for a, a few times a year yeah. for a large amount of money. Yeah. Goodness. It was really just collection of all of these documents and a few videos here and there that I just submitted to the public. Things that we had on record, including one school that had uh, abandoned its entire curriculum, everything stopped school for six months to do a racial equity project. Didn't tell us. I had no idea my science teachers at that school had abandoned my pacing guide for the year. Things they needed to do to pass the end of assessment oh, test. Oh, this is a middle school? Uh, Butler Lab school? 60 in uh, Indianapolis broke the story and they brought in the Indy Black Lives Matter speaker series who told the students in required sessions that crime doesn't exist. It was made up by white people to round up minorities. And that is on video <laughs> because that, it months. sounds like I'm being dramatic. Yeah, yeah. this is for six, six months. Six months. Oh my God. Whole thing. They, they read this book called Ghost Boys in, in English, didn't learn anything about English or grammar or anything. They just talked about social things. In science, they studied environmental racism. Mm. That's when hurricanes were a clan hood, right? <laughs> just as a science, as a former science teacher, you don't have enough time to go into as much detail as you would like on these subjects. And you're ditching six months of my curriculum that I painstakingly worked on. Was this during on. COVID or before? This was after. This is after COVID. 
And I, I was just astounded that we were doing any of this anyway. But I broke all of this and they immediately placed me on leave with pay, partly because they were afraid. They said, and I have on recording, they were afraid for my safety. They thought that like other teachers were going to get violent with me for having, <laughs> you know, distributed this. And then they said I had given teachers, teachers had reported I'd given them clinical anxiety. Mm. And they had to clear out the office that I worked in when I came to pick up my stuff because they were all terrified of me. <laughs> uh, so I, I told them it would have been easier if I would have just opened the door and shouted unclean. unclean. <laughs> Maybe that would have been a, a little more yeah. on point. And then they they this is great. You're going to love this. They considered putting me in an old abandoned planetarium as its caretaker <laughs> because they couldn't figure out what to do with me. And there was yeah. no real reason to fire me. I was rated highly effective in the district twice. Yeah. I had the highest rated score of professional developments. Teachers that I worked with loved getting professional developments from me. And they didn't know what to do because yeah. the national news is reporting on. And if they fire me right before Christmas with a pregnant wife, it's going to look terrible. Yeah. And so they're like, well, should we make him this like janitor of this old planetarium? Yeah. Like it's mission impossible. <laughs> like send him into a Siberian radio tower. Yeah. And they finally ended up canning me very quietly after the yeah. new year, just as a very cursory sweep away with the administration. Yeah. But they did pay me through the entire Christmas holiday into January because they were terrified. Yeah. Because if you're placed on leave without pay, then I have a whole list of legal rights. Mm -hmm. They tried to stop my lawyer from coming into a meeting with HR with me. Really? Yeah. 20 minute argument. It was incredible. What was their reasoning? Well, I was allowed to have a representative from the union. Uh, but given that my picture is on a dartboard in the Indiana State Teachers Association, I'm not going to provide <laughs> anyone. Because at that time, I'd helped, I think, 115 teachers leave the Indiana State Teachers Association. So there was no law or anything about what other representation you could have. Mm -hmm. Because back when they wrote that law, only you had to be a part of the union to be a teacher mm -hmm. in Indiana. Well, since that had passed in Janus with Supreme Court... Mm -hmm. There was no precedent. So my lawyer just came in with me. It's like, look, it's his constitutional right. This could change his work. He is under investigation by the district officially. I'm going to sit in here with him mm -hmm. and tell him what questions he should and shouldn't answer, which I answered all their questions because they didn't have anything on me and they still don't. So it was really hilarious to watch the whole process because they were so horrifically embarrassed. They are still sending people around to my events in Indiana, worried that I'm going to say more things about the school. <laughs> That's incredible. And so you haven't uh, you haven't sat on your laurels. You've been you've been busy at work and and there's sort of two projects that you've been involved with um, one preceding uh, all this happening and, and one shortly after. Tell us about Chalkboard Review. Tell us about Choice Media. What what, what are each of them uh, trying to do? Yeah. So a few years ago, Daniel Buck and I were having a conversation. I, I had had a piece rejected from Ed Week. Um, I'd had a piece rejected from Chalkbeat and I'd had a piece rejected from Ball State University. And they weren't even political pieces. None of them were. Well, the one to Ed Week was a little political, but it wasn't like really to the right. Mm -hmm. Very basic, fundamental stuff. Mm -hmm. And they'd been rejected for political reasons. And I was annoyed because these were education pieces. I wanted to write about education pieces for education publications, period. And Buck had had some of the similar experiences. I'd also been rejected from going on that NPR wing Indiana station, mm -hmm. as I told you. And he, Buck was furious that we would been, you know, unless it was a union funded publication, there wasn't anywhere to write. He said, we should found a publication where anyone can write about education issues and we're not going to censor it. And I was like, that's a really cool idea. No, I don't want to launch a publication <laughs> that no one's going to read. I don't want a podcast. I don't want to do all of this. And he worked me over. And eight months later, we launched Chalkboard Review. Mm. 
And in one year of operation, we ended up getting about 55,000 monthly readers, mm-hmm. have a podcast, of, of course, and it's been a wonderful experience to pull in a bunch of articles from the right, from the center, and some from the left. And then also a lot of homeschool parents who've never had a place to write for in an education publication that says everyone's a stakeholder in education, which goes back to what you and I talked about originally, that Mm. education touches everything. So everyone should be able to touch education. Mm -hmm. And it's been amazing to give a window to anyone who wants to read about anything education related. Well, then all of the CRT and the SEL and other things started to break Mm -hmm. and we just continued to provide resources. Now we have a series called Read the Bill, which is a fact check on all of the claims made about education bills like Florida's 1557 or the don't say gay bill. Mm -hmm. Just a quick analysis of what is in the bill, what's not in the bill. That's it. It's a service no one else is providing. Mm -hmm. So we'll do it. And with uh, Bob Bowden stepping down after 10 years at Choice Media, which is an education newswire, I was uh, very blessed to be selected. Mm -hmm. And now I run Choice Media, Chalkboard Review. So all of the education news from commentary to newswire to analysis Mm -hmm. to tracking sexual abuse in schools Mm -hmm. to read the bill, our critical race theory toolkit, Mm -hmm. all is available directly for parents, teachers, administrators, whoever. So what are the three or four stories in education right now? Obviously, critical race theory is the thing everyone's talking about. And I do want to talk about that. But but other than that, what are the you mentioned um, child sexual abuse? Um, that's certainly um, interesting. I, I, I worked on a bill when I worked in the Texas State Senate about um, uh, about that and how you know teachers can kind of float from school district to school district, never mm. really being held accountable for right. uh, sexually sexually abusing children. Um, what, are, what are the stories that that um, you think are are under uh, reported because all the focus is on critical race theory right now. There are some sexual abuse cases that need a, a serious look at. I think the number of alliance clubs that occur in uh, many fourth to eighth grade environments. Where Sorry, alliance clubs? Alliance club is a group after school club or during school club, depending on the school, where you are brought in to be told how to be a better ally to LGBTQ plus. Oh, this is Gay Straight Alliance. Yes. Okay. And so the the goal is to create this kind of the party, mm-hmm. you know, where like you have your average citizens, and then you have members of the party mm-hmm. and they're like dedicated. And I think that that's something that should be getting a lot more attention because you do have now a social and moral caste system. Mm-hmm. Well, are you a good person? Are you a good enough person to be a part of the Gay Straight Alliance? Who Do you actually mm-hmm. really care about all of these trans children which are totally a thing and aren't just cases of child abuse Mm -hmm. so i think that's an underreported story because it sounds so benign but it isn't Mm -hmm. in the slightest another thing is the embezzlement and the horrible misappropriation of funds i think that we allow the left to communicate that teachers are underpaid so often without communicating the most basic truth which is that the schools are receiving enough money They're just not paying their teachers. Mm -hmm. They're spending it on the Racial Equity Institute or new STEM programs or refurbishing the high school gym for the 18th time in the last 30 years. Indiana may not have been a very good epicenter of this, but but what have you made of sort of the increasing emphasis of ESL education and and the declining language standards for, for immigrant children? I think what Thomas Sowell articulated in the 1990s was a very important statement And I I just did a podcast talking about Soul's writings on the bilingual movement, the multicultural movement, which is 
what's going on today with a different coat of paint. The idea that uh, by putting a student in a Spanish speaking environment, they'll learn better than they would if they were in an English speaking environment because they grew up speaking Spanish. Patently not true. The data shows it. And I was actually kicked off a doctoral team at Ball State University for suggesting that in this lab that we were creating for Anderson high school and middle school students, that English was the goal. So we would have some Spanish elements for some of the Spanish speaking students. And Indiana is actually one of the touch points for Hispanic immigration. So we are one of the uh, kind of epicenters for ESL. What I found through my research was that if the goal was to get the student competent in English, they would be more proficient in the sciences and in manipulating things in the sciences rather than forcing everything into Spanish and then slowing down the stream of information to them because it first has to go through a translator. Mm -hmm. And that was seen as just an unconscionable thing that I should suggest that Hispanic born students that come from Hispanic speaking families should be moving towards English. Now, every single Hispanic family that I've spoken to every parent, I have yet to find a single Hispanic immigration family that has said that the goal should not be for their child to learn English. And that's why I ended up developing the lab later on and gave it to a couple of schools across the Midwest so that their Hispanic students could be pushed towards English, which would mm-hmm. be far more beneficial than some multicultural stuffed animal. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it seems like it's also just a major cost suck, right? I mean, it, the, the, the amount of resources that end up getting devoted to uh, ESL education. I mean, I've, I've heard because there's kind of there's uh, there's economies of scale that come out of having all the students in one classroom as opposed to in two. That's a great and, point. And uh, I've heard, especially in a lot of border states, I mean, costs are ballooning like crazy because of the need to essentially create a separate school within the school for the ESL kids. I speak fluent Spanish. Mm-hmm. I have never once felt that it was necessary for me to work in an ESL environment because, first of all, I find the nature to be very pandery. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I know some really great ESL teachers who are in it for the right reasons. Mm-hmm. But I think the nature of the program suggests that English is not good enough to push students, modern ESL, classical ESL that came out of the 50s and 60s that were seen with a lot of uh, Korean immigrants from refugees from the Korean War mm-hmm. and later on from the Vietnam War. A lot of those programs were based on getting you to English as quickly as possible and celebrating your success at the end of the course Mm -hmm. a lot of great studies on korean and vietnamese programs uh, from refugees of the horrible communist onslaught but the hispanic esl environments are more based on it's unfortunate you have to learn english and so the cost suck comes in on all these social programs that are associated with it and all this do-goodery nonsense that isn't helpful and is often really stereotypically biased Mm -hmm. So the the final uh, thing that I wanted to talk about is uh, school choice. Uh, And you and I had a very good conversation uh, a year or two ago on your podcast about this. Um, You're now sort of officially in the kind of conservative policy ecosystem. And, um, you know, uh, historically speaking, school choice has been the the primary uh, destination for right wing energy and education reform. And um, I think that that's ultimately been a mistake because it meant that we were asleep at the wheel when it came to what was actually happening in our public schools where most people are educated. Uh, What say you? I think that it's important that students have a choice in where they go. And by that, I mean their families have a choice in where the students go. 
But a lot of people in the school choice movement think that by flipping a switch, it's going to magically fix the education system. And Daniel Buck and I wrote about this in, in NRO very recently on the idea of painting a picture of what comes after. Mm-hmm. And in regard to investing into public schools and private schools, a lot of parents are finding out right now mm-hmm. that moving them from moving their kids from the public school that was really bad into the local private school is just as bad. Mm-hmm. And they have the same kind of social nonsense that was bogging down the academics in the public school as well as the moral character. Mm-hmm. I think that what is more useful to focus on rather than just rotely saying school choice over and over and over and over and over again, yeah. as some of my friends maybe at Cato do, yeah. I would suggest that slowly suffocating yourself with a yellow scarf. <laughs> really though, yeah. I, I would suggest that it's, it's, you don't have to pass specific laws to say that there are objectively good moral values that need to be rubber stamped, so to speak by the state in schools. And these racially, sexually, behaviorally, and religiously divisive concepts that are being pressed into kids in these public schools are terrible, but simply flipping the switch to school choice when there is no available infrastructure for them to go anywhere isn't doing anything. And it's not providing anything helpful. So I do think that that is a stumbling block that we've been working past now. The framework is shifting, and a lot of individuals that are only school choice only are losing ground, Mm -hmm. but there is a larger impetus to paint a picture for what comes next and how to actually rebuild a system and make it useful and worthwhile Mm -hmm. rather than just doing the libertarian shortcut. Yeah. Well, I mean, in a world of of woke capital where companies, Fortune 500 companies seem utterly divorced from profit motive uh, and in, in their ESG policies that they push in corporate wokeness, there's no reason to believe that a much more ideologically saturated industry education just by adding market forces would magically become less woke. There's just no reason to believe that. Especially with all of the regulations. I never hear the libertarian scholars on school choice talk about how important it is to deregulate education licensing and teacher education programs. Again, from the earlier example, education teachers colleges are a funnel that all of the social sciences at any university will swim down to Mm -hmm. before they leave. It is so silly Mm -hmm. to suggest that because we suddenly have school choice, if all the teachers are still coming from the same place, that is what they're suddenly they're going to teach a different way because Florida or Indiana say they're going to teach differently. Mm-hmm. No, I, the, the idea is silly. Every single teacher who hears that they're supposed to do something that they don't want to do mm-hmm. are not going to put their heart and soul into carrying out that order. Yeah, they're not. People just don't work like that. Right. And if anything, they'll actively subvert it. And then you can't have a hall monitor in every single classroom. That's why I believe it's more useful to build up a better source of teachers mm-hmm. and a better source what would that look like? of who's first of all, putting a lot more of our resources into colleges like Maranatha, like Hillsdale, like Pensacola, like Bob Jones that are producing good, solid character driven individuals and also deregulating the education field so that a parent who's homeschool taught for 40 years can come in and teach mm-hmm. or someone who is a you know engineer for yeah a professional years, in that field um, the school and, you know, system they can teach the physics class yeah the school system should be able to decide whether the individual is competent it's going to be evident after six weeks whether mm-hmm. the person you hired can do their job or not mm-hmm. I, I don't see why indiana giving me some magical piece of paper certifies me as a good teacher mm-hmm. some of my best licensed teachers were awful yeah. Yeah. Uh, Tony, where can people keep an eye on on everything you're working on now as you're, you're building up these two great organizations and follow you? The first thing that you should do is head over to thechalkboardreview.com. That's where you can join our email list and see whatever's going on. 
Follow us on social media at Chalkboard Rev across all the platforms. If you're really desperate for me smacking other Indiana journalists and uh, associated Midwestern education nonsense at the whole, I guess you can follow me on Twitter at <laughs> the Tonus. Yeah. Uh, no promises on the quality of those tweets. Yeah, very good. Well, um, I really do encourage everyone to keep an eye on on what Tony's doing. Uh, we've been friends for a few years now, and it's exciting to see him take this step in in leading two great organizations. Tony, thank you for coming on the podcast. Thanks for having me. I could have probably gone another hour with Tony, but we got to run a tight ship over here at American Moment. As always, go to AmericanMoment.org where you can see everything we have cooking. I think all the backlog of uh, Up From Chaos is up. So if you want to attend our conference in an asynchronous and virtual way, uh, you can uh, go watch incredible foreign policy speeches from people like David Sachs and J.D. Vance, Joe Kent, Rand Paul, Tom Massey, Matt Rosendale, Dan Bishop, and many more. Um, you can check out the backlog of this podcast, uh, well over 50 episodes, so much content with a capital C, registered trademark. Um, you can see all of the cool programming we're doing on our website. I don't think there's any active applications right now, but always make sure to sign up or go to AmericanMoment.org slash join if you'd like to get involved and get involved now. Um, and as always, rate and review this podcast. Five stars. It really helps us subscribe on YouTube uh, or Rumble. Um, you know, Follow us on Facebook and Twitter at ammoment.org. Uh, keep up with what we're doing. We're always posting clips. We're always posting interesting stuff that we're working on. It's well worth it. Um, thank you guys for listening as always, and we will see you next week on Moment of Truth. Moment of Truth is an American Moment Studios production filmed at the Conservative Partnership Center. Our podcast is produced and edited by Jake Mercier and Jared Cummings. Our intro music is A Minor Struggle by Ryan Serenich. Don't forget to like and subscribe on all platforms, and you can go to AmericanMoment.org to learn more. Thank you.